Welcome to the official podcast for the Society of Urodynamics, Female Pelvic Medicine, and Urogenital Reconstruction. Here you will find podcasts highlighting clinically relevant topics, ongoing SUFU initiatives, SUFU member highlights, and much, much more. Hello, and welcome to the podcast series on fellowship directors. I am Ariana Smith from the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm here with Ben Brucker, Associate Professor of Urology and OBGYN at NYU Langone Health. Ben has been the fellowship director for the past two years. Ben, can you tell me about your fellowship? Sure. Thanks uh, for having me on the podcast, Ariana. It's a real pleasure given the fact that one of the reasons I went into FPMRS was because of you. So it's uh, it's great to have you now uh, coming full circle. Um, so our fellowship is a combined fellowship. Uh, it's a fellowship that trains both urologists and gynecologists. Um, so in terms of the fellowship lengths, the urologists complete two years of fellowship at NYU and the gynecologist will complete three years as sort of dictated by the uh, governing bodies. So how many faculty do the fellows work with in your program? So currently there are uh, three full-time faculty. We also have a colorectal faculty uh, that allows the patients, uh, that allows the fellows uh, for, to be exposed to patients with uh, other disorders in the colorectal field that, um, that we see sometimes tangentially, but gives them a little bit of experience. Uh, we also have a, a slew of other faculty members uh, as NYU is a fairly large uh, urology and gynecology faculty uh, to get exposure to all different aspects Aspects of uh, female pelvic medicine. Um, in addition, we have ostomy nurses that the um, fellows can work with. Uh, we have uh, a PA that the, the fellows get to work with. Um, and so it's, I think, a pretty comprehensive group uh, in addition to, um, again, some of the gynecologic surgeons and urologic surgeons, uh, if there are other things that the fellows have interest in to, to be exposed to. That sounds great. Can I come back to fellowship? We'd love to have you. We'd be lucky to have you. Um, but it, I think, um, you know, sort of it, it is nice that we have sort of all of these uh, different opportunities, um, but we really still do put an emphasis on, on a lot of the core, um, core, I guess, milestones and, and things that we aim to train fellows so that they can be uh, competent, um, uh, I guess, surgeons in pelvic medicine, uh, as well as uh, scientists and researchers. So alongside your curriculum for FPMRS and the subspecialty rotations, are there any um, time, is there any time left for electives? So uh, there are electives that we've done in the past, and some of this is a little bit at the discretion of of the actual fellow. We've had a community rotation that's been done. Uh, We've also talked about some international travel. Um, So there is a little bit of elective time. Uh, We do also have a rotation that's uh, to Bellevue Hospital. So those of you that don't know Bellevue Hospital, um, though I think there might be a television show that's a new Amsterdam that's based at Bellevue. So if you want to see what it looks like, you can check it out there. Um, But Bellevue's uh, HCC, so it's the, the largest sort of um, city hospital in New York. It's physically located right next to our main campus, uh, so it's not really a different offsite location, but it gives the fellows an exposure to a real unique, different patient population, a lot of under or uninsured patients, a lot of uh, underrepresented minorities. Um, so it's, I think, a, a real experience in a community hospital and then also getting sort of the main rotation at Tisch Hospital, which is a, a large academic institution in Midtown Manhattan. That sounds great and like a whole lot of fun. 
So this is a hard question in terms of trying to figure out breakdown, but I understand with your faculty, your group is able to offer the fellows training in vaginal surgery as well as robotics. You also do neurogenics and male. So what's your best estimate on sort of the breakdown between vaginal surgery, robotics, um, surgery for males? So um, you're right. I think that we do have everything to offer. Um, We have, uh, I think, faculty that are both gynecologists and urologists. And so there are some little differences and nuances. Uh, For example, a lot of the neurogenic or or even the exposure to men is something that I I might provide, but our gynecologic uh, faculty does not. Um, But overall, I would say I think it's probably 50-50 between vaginal surgery and robotic surgery. Um, We still do a lot of urethral work. So urethral Urethral reconstructions, urethral diverticulum. So maybe the number then favors a little bit more of the vaginal surgery. But in terms of straight prolapse, um, vaginal hysterectomy and hysterectomy robotic are, are things that we commonly do. Um, the neurogenic bladder population, uh, we do have an opportunity to go to an MS center. Um, so that's sort of a nice exposure. And we do have a big rehab um, facility as well. So there are opportunities for spinal cord, though probably a little less. Um, I think as a, um, a female pelvic medicine doc, I think the MS population and maybe a little bit of Parkinson's ends up being the the lion's share with a little less of the neurogenic. Um, And I think that the other area that we try to expose fellows to is urodynamics. um, And that's sort of an area that I think allows a fellow to really understand how the lower urinary tract works, how it functions. Um, It's one thing to get a urodynamic report, but I think one of the things that I learned when I was a fellow was when you're actually doing the study in there, it allows you to answer the questions um, that you have clinically so that you can ultimately come up with a plan. So I think in, in some ways that curriculum is is really the most valuable for understanding the lower urinary tract and how the bladder functions. Um, but again, we spend a lot more time in the operating room doing uh, vaginal and robotic surgery. Fantastic. So what about clinic? Do your fellows come to clinic with the faculty and do they run their own clinic? So right now, the priority is to get them cases, um, but there are a lot of opportunities. Um, At times, it's more of an apprenticeship when they're in clinic with us where they're working hand in hand. So I think it is important for them to be in clinic. The rotations being a little longer allow for some continuity with our patients. Um, The Bellevue Clinic is probably more or less a um, fellow-run clinic. There is supervision there um, from one of the FPMRS faculty, um, but it does allow them to sort of get the, I guess, knowledge and and training about how to schedule uh, their own surgeries and patients, um, uh, et cetera. So now moving on to the research component, what are the research requirements for your fellows and how do they pay for it? So the um, research requirements um, are a little bit dictated to us, um, but I think that my little take on it is I want them to do meaningful research. Um, There is a time requirement where they're going to be spending probably 20% of their time doing research. So we have a a month block at a time, Uh, probably ends up being about four months of of, uh, research. So they have a two month block, uh, usually twice a a year. Um, They get the research exposure uh, 
payment for the research. We encourage fellows to apply for grants, and we've had some great success uh, with funding research that way. Um, they're funded um, for their fellowship, so they don't actually have to pay for their time. They're still getting a salary when they're on their research blocks. Um, but at the same time, if there are other needs, we have departmental funds, we have institutional funds, uh, philanthropy that sort of uh, factors in. Um, I think that the some of the clinical projects don't require a lot of money per se, but certainly there are going to be needs for statistics or sort of analysis, data sets. Um, and I think part of being a researcher is learning how to apply for grants and learning how to sort of try to get funding for things. Um, we used to sort of use the research as a uh, you know, one day a week, you do some research or two days a week. But we've listened to what the fellows had sort of given us feedback about, and they find it a lot more productive to have a block of time. So by having a two month block of time at a time, I think it allows them to get more meaningful research done. Yeah, I've always found that to work best for myself as well. So I think that's a great, great, great way to approach it. Sounds like your fellows are pretty busy, but do they also have to take call? So um, they don't. Uh, we don't have a call requirement um, currently. I don't have any plans of instituting a call requirement. Um, as you mentioned, I think that a lot of their time and effort goes into you know, clinical work. We're a very busy clinical uh, program. Uh, on top of it, we sort of have that protected research time, which is also a busy time. Um, and I think that there probably is still a need for people to have a social life and to enjoy living in Manhattan because it's not a bad place to live. Um, so there's not a call requirement um, there used to be about a two or three hour period where uh, the fellows would take the uh, pager during the in-service examination. But I think the oncology fellows handle that now, too. So the uh, don't tell anyone, although this is now on, on a podcast somewhere, but the FPMRS uh, <laughs> fellows are a little bit more protected. Good. We'll keep protecting them because we don't want anyone to burn out. So tell us where your past fellows have gone, um, either into academic practice or private practice. Yeah, so we've had really a lot of success uh, placing fellows in the you know in, in various places and practice types. I think that the goal is that they're going to be a leader wherever they go. It uh, doesn't mean you need to be an academic leader. Doesn't mean that you need to be uh, necessarily the you know the head of a, a hospital leader. But we want you to sort of really make a mark. Um, we've had uh, quite a few fellows go into academic positions um, where they've uh, been quite successful, uh, some a little bit more of a hybrid model of a private practice. Um, and I, I think that, you know, the geography is quite varied. And one of the great things, and I know we'll talk about some of these other strengths in a little bit, so I don't want to sort of cut ahead too much, but it's really the NYU network um, of people, um, people that we know and people that we've trained. And uh, it's pretty funny now, uh, now having been at NYU for uh, close to 10 years and, and having multiple fellows have graduated during that time, um, it's rare that a patient comes in and is going on vacation somewhere and they say, you know, Dr. Brucker, uh, what if I have an issue with such and such? And I said, don't worry, I know so-and-so in a certain city. Uh, so it is pretty neat that, uh, that they've been so successful in, in terms of establishing their careers and really becoming leaders in, in what they do. That sounds great. I think you train a great group of fellows and now they've gone on to leave their mark across the country. Um, so tell us what it's like to be a fellow in New York City. 
So I think it's a fantastic place to be a fellow um, because you're not taking call. You do have a little free time. Uh, there are a couple of restaurants in New York that are Just pretty good. Few, right? Just a few. Um, it is, um, I think, a, a, a wonderful opportunity um, to, to sort of, you know, get to experience what Manhattan's like. Um, people sometimes get a little intimidated about, you know, living in New York. I sort of always remind them that as a PGY uh, 7, 8 or 9 or wherever you are, you're getting paid more than you are as a PGY one, two, or three. And we have plenty of residents that are living very comfortably in Manhattan. So there's a little bit of a salary adjustment uh, for living in New York. So they make a little bit more money. Uh, you're still a, a, you know, a fellow, so it's not quite the attending salary yet. But uh, I will often be out at a restaurant and see a fellow or a resident enjoying themselves. Um, so I think it's a, a great place to live. Um, tons of housing opportunities for them. So that's sometimes a question that we get about uh, housing. There is some NYU housing, although most of our residents at, at NYU and, and fellows choose to live at other housing sites um, that's quite affordable. And it really just allows you to pick and choose what you like. If you want a little bit more of a suburban uh, location, the commute's not so bad. And ultimately, you're not on call. So it's very doable. If you want to live right in the heart of all of it or live in sort of a trendy, cool part of town, you can do that as well. Well, I would think the best part would be not having to have a car. That's very true. You're right. So what do you think the biggest strength of your fellowship program is? So I think uh, I would be remiss if I did not, um, I guess, mention on this podcast the strength of our faculty. Um, I'm lucky enough um, to sort of have a, a partner, a sort of co-director, Nareet Rosenblum, uh, who really is a fantastic asset, a very skilled surgeon, very sort of insightful, um, and really keeps keeps me on my toes in a good way and sort of keeps me in check. Um, Dominique Malcarne, who's a gynecologist that's in our practice, um, and she is a, quite sharp and quite determined and, and surgically. It's amazing to see the things that, that she can do. She was actually a fellow of ours, um, but it's always fun when she does things better than I do them. Uh, it means that I guess uh, Nareed and, and I uh, must have trained her well and, and to see her succeed. That's great. Well, you're certainly going to go far in life acknowledging your <laughs> co-directors and the women who help run your program. So kudos to you for that. So just to finish up here today um, on this podcast of, on fellowships, um, is there anything you're changing or that you wish you could change about your fellowship? So yeah, um, we're excited that uh, we have a new faculty member joining us. Um, so Laura's, uh, Lauren uh, Stewart. Uh, is coming from a, a very well-renowned uh, gynecologic program uh, up at Brown. Um, she brings a whole slew of laparoscopic skills. Um, there are people out there that still do laparoscopic surgery, believe it or not. Um, and so I think it'll be a great asset to now add maybe to the next version of this podcast when you ask me, do we do vaginal or robotic surgery, laparoscopic? Um, it's also nice to have uh, people that think in different ways with different backgrounds. So I think that the faculty expansion is a good thing. Um, I also just um, I have approval now to hire another urologist as well. Uh, so these are things that will probably happen, I guess, for those of you listening to the podcast. If you do decide to train at NYU or at least come visit us, uh, we'll have an ever expanding faculty uh, so that, uh, again, you have a nice diversity in, in learning how to do things surgically and really manage patients, both the routine patients and also the super complex patients that we, we tend to see. Well, thank you, Dr. Brucker, for sharing so much information on your fellowship program at NYU Langone Health. And uh, this is Ariana Smith, and we're re reporting here from SUFU 2020. Goodbye, everyone.
Thanks for listening to today's episode on the Sufu Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast streaming app. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. Follow us on Twitter with our handle at SuFuOrg, where we'll provide real-time updates of our next podcast episode launch. And be sure to check us out on our website, www.sufuorg.com.